Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Forrestal, who's the author of Designing for Democracy, How to Build Community in Digital Environments. This book was published in 2022 by Oxford University Press, and it is a really interesting combination of understanding media, understanding social media in particular, understanding democracy, understanding democratic theorists, um, and thinking about how we exist in space. Um, and so I'm going to ask Jennifer to start off by telling us a little bit about herself and how she came to this fascinating project about designing for democracy. Hey, Jen. Hey, Lily. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, so about me, I guess, uh, so I am currently at Loyola University of Chicago, um, where I am an assistant professor, um, just kind of doing my political theory thing. Um, this in terms of sort of how I came to this project, uh, it was a long time in the making. So this is based on um, work that I started uh, during graduate school for my dissertation, um, where I was at Northwestern, so back in Chicago. Um, and, you know, the genesis of this project was really uh, one of two things. The first was um, the, like, sort of linguistic coincidence of software architecture. So the way that software developers talk about the way that, you know, designing um, software programs or platforms is to think about it architecturally. Um, and I thought that was super interesting and a kind of analogy worth building on and it paid dividends. So I'm glad I worked it out. Um, yeah. So the other sort of piece of that was sort of thinking about what to do with the architecture. And that was really, again, sort of based on the fact that I was in Chicago for this research. Um, and for those that are maybe unfamiliar, Chicago is a city that has a very rich history of architectural innovation, but also sort of democratic activism. And historically, those two things were sort of most vivid at the same time. So the early 20th century, the city of Chicago kind of burned down and people were trying to rebuild it. And there was a lot of progressive sort of movements. John Dewey was here, Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan were rebuilding uh, skyscrapers, Um, Jane Addams and the Hull House, and all of these people are sort of in the same circles. And so a little bit about that history and this sort of idea of software architecture, it occurred to me that um, we hadn't really given much thought to the kinds of built environments or sort of architectures that democracy requires or are needed to house democratic politics. And we certainly had not thought about that in digital spaces. And so this book was trying to give us a way to think and talk about the kinds of spaces like we literally need to be in to make democracy work and how we can import or build those spaces um, digitally as well. And and so to to move forward in thinking about these um, spaces, both digital ones and and physical actual ones that we inhabit simultaneously, um, you have a pretty clear definition of what you're talking about with regard to this idea of democracy, um, and and how humans, citizens of democracies, um, and those who are legally citizens or um, you know 
uh, aliens or um, immigrants and so forth who are all in the the sort of democratic space. Can you explain just quickly (laughs) (laughs) what you are thinking about when you think about sort of contemporary democracy as we understand it? Yeah, so I um, increasingly over the years have been comfortable taking this position, but I think of democracy in, I think, what many would call a participatory kind of way, uh, maybe more communitarian kind of way. So for me, democracy is a mode of collective problem solving that involves all of the people affected by a decision in the process of making that decision. And so when I think about the term like citizen, um, I tend to think of it more broadly than the kind of legal definition. I'm thinking of a person who is or should be considered a member of a community, meaning that, again, they're affected by the consequences of the decisions that other people are making. Um, and so because democracy requires this kind of activity of working together and, and making decisions, we know from like decades of political science work that that's very hard to do. And we've tried to think of a lot of different ways to make it a little bit easier. Um, and so I think the built environment is one of the ways um, to do that, that sort of facilitates this kind of collective problem solving or, or decision making, um, even when it might not seem so easy. And, and your your book actually is really interesting in um, providing some visuals early on with regard to democratic spaces um, and and what you're talking about in terms of like how s- the physical space that we exist in um, uh, sort of lends itself to our understanding of the capacity to sort of be in those spaces with other people. Um, and so it, th- before we get into the more abstract software architecture, um, can you talk a little bit about some of these examples that you provide with regard to thinking about democratic spaces? Yeah, so um, the language that I use in the book, drawing from, because um, I, I, I got to get more abstract for a minute, Lily, but then we'll go back to, <laughs> to the examples. Um, so the language that I use in the book, which is drawing from, again, a long history in both architecture and, and software architecture. Um, is to think about this in terms of affordances. And so when we think about the ways that the built environment works on us, we can think about the things that it sort of facilitates or incentivizes us to do or the things that it prevents us from doing. And so um, some of the examples that I use to sort of get this in mind or sort of how this works before we get into the sort of democratic affordances, the things that we need to do for democracy Um, would be something like, um, so a stop sign and a brick wall both prevent you from moving forward, supposedly, right? Like you cannot move forward without stopping. Um, But a brick wall like literally prevents you from moving forward in a way that a stop sign, you know, requires a lot of sort of norms laying over it, a kind of police presence to actually make you stop. And so because those things are often not there, people roll through stop signs all the time. Though I realize after writing this book that maybe these examples are more intuitive of me than people normally. But the point is that the built environment can exert this kind of power over us to make us do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. And so again, like a wall um, can prevent us from seeing or moving, but a window or a door can make that a little bit more permeable. And so thinking about the way that the built environment shapes our behavior by, again, allowing us to do things or incentivizing us to do things. 
um, that we wouldn't otherwise do makes it a thing that we should be more attentive to when we're thinking about democratic politics and democratic behaviors. And so, again, there's a difference between what we can or cannot do. Like you literally cannot go through a brick wall. Um, whereas if you think about things like grocery stores and supermarkets, right, those are designed in ways that like give you choice, but really it's structure your behavior, incentivize behaviors over others, right? So when you're in a casino, you are sort of motivated or incentivized to stay in the casino and to like continue going back to the gaming tables um, instead of going outside to take a walk on the beach or something. Um, so you can also think about different ways that the built environment exerts this kind of power. But at the end of the day, it's really about sort of how these things shape our behaviors and our perceptions of other people. And, 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 and you talk also about the fact that the built environment um, of social media, as well as the built environment in which we, you know, exist in terms of grocery stores or stop signs or sidewalks, um, also are exertions of power. Um, and, and again, this is not something that people usually connect um, with architecture or, you know, the spaces where you're going to a park, um, but that power is here. And again, this is why it's so very political. Um, can you explain how this is kind of an exertion of power? Yeah. Um, so this is like a thing that that I'm certainly not the first one to call attention to this. I mean, so Foucault very famously talks about how prisons can be designed in certain ways to facilitate certain kinds of actions. There's a kind of hidden history in political science and um, political theory that thinks about not just the built environment and sort of artificial architectural stuff, but like going back to Aristotle, they're thinking about like where you place cities geographically shapes the kinds of cities that they become sort of uh, in terms of attitude. Um, but, you know, again, like if you take power to be even the most straightforward sort of like Dolly and getting us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do, um, you know, the built environment is a product of deliberate choices that people make and those choices affect our behavior and they incentivize certain kinds of actions and disincentivize certain other kinds of actions. And so I think, you know, it, it is a sort of exertion of power. It is a reflection of choices that people make to shape um, the attitudes or behaviors of the people moving in those spaces. And, um, you know, sometimes I think we overlook the, the built environment because it just kind of is a thing we operate in and we tend not to consider sort of where the doors are placed on a subway um, or the reasons why, um, you know, supermarkets, why we tend to buy stuff at the end of the supermarket aisle and not the middle, right? Um, but once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. And so this is a thing that I've noticed <laughs> over the past few years. It's like, it's really hard to get away from the architectural angle once you see it, because it's literally everywhere shaping literally everything that you do from like the dark patterns online. Again, these really more like mundane, just like the placement of stop signs versus speed bumps versus traffic lights versus whatever are all designed in ways that get us to do certain things and not others. And, and I, and I know that um, my students who heard you in the fall were really intrigued by this aspect of your, of your talk um, that they, they really learned a lot about sort of thinking about the built environment. Um, so, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and so I, I wanted to sort of pull you now into the sort of broader thesis of the book, which is that um, the social media with which we interact in particular, the 
bigger ones these days um, of Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and Wikipedia um, are built environments um, and that they have the potential to be more democratic or less democratic. Um, and that you use a couple of theorists from spanning um, a couple couple uh, millennia <laughs> to to help your help you think about um, you know sort of how we should think about these social media spaces and how we engage in them as as citizens of democracies um, so can you just lay out a bit of that sort of broad thesis and then we can dive into the parts. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, again, sort of if you start with the idea that democracy is the activity of collective action, problem solving, decision making, sort of insert whatever word you want um, for the collective thing we do together, um, then, you know, there's a couple of things that fall out of that. Um, so, for example, um, if we are going to act together, we have to, like, think of ourselves as a group. Um, that's the sort of first thing that you have to do in order to do something collectively is think of yourself as part of it. Um, you also need to be able to um, sort of form attachments to that group to want to like stick around and make decisions with it um, rather than just sort of leaving. If you don't get what you want, there's a kind of um, uh, sort of longevity of the community that's important for democratic politics. Um, and then, you know, in order to be democratic and not just sort of political or, or collective action, all collective action is not democratic action. Um, it, you also need to be able to sort of change your mind to think about, to experiment, to play with, to incorporate an increasing diversity of voices and perspectives and sort of change the way that things are going. So, um, you know, we can think about those as affordances, right? Like you need the built environment must afford what I call the recognition of yourself as a member of a community. It has to afford attachments to that community um, and it has to afford this kind of experimentalism. And so... Uh, you know, it took me a while to come up with this, but as it turns out, um, so I'm drawing from um, thinkers like Aristotle, Oakville, and um, on Dewey, though Dewey is really throughout the whole thing, um, who are, you know, working in the same tradition of, of democratic theory, right? They're all interested in um, sort of the institutions required for this kind of progressive authority model. And so when you think of that in that way, they're all sort of interested in the same kinds of problems, right? That like, we know that democracy requires these behaviors and attitudes on the part of citizens. We know that those are really hard habits to cultivate. And so we need to think about ways to train you know, people to do that. And all three of them are attentive in one way or another to the power of the built environment in doing that, though it is hidden in some more than others. Um, and so noticing that is sort of what I pulled out of those thinkers is this, you know, if we take the things that they say about the ways that environments structure our behavior, we can then learn lessons about how to build or change those environments in order to see the kinds of behaviors that we want um, from democracy. And so, um, yeah, so that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> um, and, and so you, you've brought us right up to the edge of, um, where does this social media fit into all of this? <laughs> Clearly, I think of this as a book about architecture, not about social media, but yeah, <laughs> I'm wrong about that. The, the digital environment is a place where we are all existing these days. And and you talk about different ones and, and how they 
they can be more constraining or less constraining. And of course, at the end of the interview, I want to talk to you about Twitter and Musk, but I'm um, sure. Wait, <laughs> wait till we get there. I knew it was coming. <laughs> but how how do these particular digital environments how do they come into the discussion? Yeah, I mean, so part of the reason that I, I'm sort of not giving you an answer, I think, is because I don't see them as actually that different from the you know traditional physical spaces that we operate in. Um, so, like parks and schools and supermarkets, um, you know, platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and Mastodon and sort of insert whatever platform you want. Um, structure our behavior in really specific ways, right? They afford us the ability to do certain things and not others. Um, They are the product of deliberate design choices. They, I think, have this kind of one-to-one analogy with the dynamics that we see in the physical environments. And so, you know, the sort of jumping off point of the book is that these are structurally very similar. And so we can apply the same principles that we've developed over millennia as political theorists to these things that are um, different in some interesting ways, um, but really the same in the most basic ways. And so I think the ways that sort of what the book's punchline is or sort of, um, yeah, conclusion is, is that these differ in the extent to which they afford some of these democratic affordances and not others. So most platforms are quite flexible in the sense of like, um, you know, they allow us to see a variety of information and to be exposed to a lot of different perspectives. They give us a lot of control over what we see and how we engage with information, um, which normal physical spaces don't do. It's really hard to manipulate physical spaces. Like the laws of physics just make it kind of difficult and those don't apply on the internet, uh, at least to the same extent. Um, you know, likewise, it, we know that we don't, we aren't actually exposed to that much diversity in most of our daily lives um, and the places like work where we are uh, maybe no longer exist in the same way. And so, um, you know, if we think about the digital, these digital platforms as affording more flexibility and um um, not affording the recognition and attachment of our of ourselves as members of communities in these spaces, so we gather with others. And that is simply just a different balancing of these three affordances that I lay out. It's not a difference in kind; it's just a difference in balance. And so, um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's the same thing. <laughs> um, they're just sort of doing it a little bit differently. And so, if we know that we need all three, then really we know that like maybe when physical spaces need to be made more flexible, that's a problem that's unique to those kinds of spaces. Whereas the problems unique to digital spaces are that we need to be more incentivized to think of ourselves as members of community because we are, whether we think of them like or not. And the, the three areas that you spend the most time looking at, the digital spaces that you spend time looking at are Facebook, um, Twitter, and Reddit, um, and and they also get connected to a particular thinker <laughs> and a particular affordance. You you love threes. There's Trinity all over this. The Arendtian in me. I ended up actually so over the course of writing this book, the Tocqueville chapter was actually an Arendt chapter, and so like the three part remains. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing you're at a Catholic institution. Um, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, 
Um, so in your in your multiple trinities, um, can you can you sort of set up like I mean we interact with Facebook on a regular basis, um, and there's a lot of discussion about how it's you know an opportunity to be in friendship with others and with family, um, and it's not necessarily someplace where we're doing a whole lot of other things, um, obviously. But there is these there are these questions about information that comes through Facebook and, you know, how it's absorbed. And then we have Twitter, which is less about connecting to friends and family and maybe more about immediacy. Um, And then Reddit, your argument with Reddit, which I really enjoyed, um, is about the kinds of community that exists there. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how each of these different platforms, while similar, are still somewhat distinct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, the the three platforms that I'm looking at are sort of used as illustrations of these particular affordances and how they work in digital spaces. And so um, I think that the interesting story about Facebook um, is that it is a story of boundaries that appear or disappear in that space. And so, um, again, using Aristotle, I make the case in the book that boundaries are really important for helping us think of ourselves or or recognize ourselves as members of a community. And so you can, in the physical space, this looks like, you know, if you are in the same room as another person, you just think of yourself in relation to that person differently. Or like, I think the example in the book is like, if you are on an airplane with someone, you start talking to strangers in a way that like totally inconceivable, even in the airport right before you board. And so it's the same people, but you think of yourselves differently. And, And that I argue is a function of the boundaries of the airplane. You understand what you have in common with those people on the flight. Um, and so I think that, you know, that, that carries through, that dynamic carries through into digital spaces and we can see how it works on Facebook. So when Facebook was first created um, in 2004, it was bounded by the .edu or college networks. And so you, when you joined, you joined as a member of a community that was already defined. Now, those communities were offline communities. So Facebook was sort of replicating um, spaces that were already in the physical world. So I joined as a member of the Ohio State community. Um, but it also then allowed you to meet new people and make kind of connections in on Facebook that you might be wouldn't have in your physical classes or on campus precisely because you understood that you had something in common. So like in my case, you would have both been Buckeyes and that was, you know, something that started a conversation or, or recognition more than meeting someone like a, on a message board randomly. Um that changed over time, right? So Facebook slowly got rid of all of those kinds of boundaries. And so the result was like a total confusion. And and what we have today is like individualized networks. So like on Facebook, you connect within, you connect individually with family and friends, like you were saying, Lily. Um, But you don't really think of yourselves in community with one another. It's sort of my network connecting individually to the other individuals that I know. Um, And it's less of a sense of me joining, you know, sort of a larger, um, group of people. That is not true of all Facebook, right? So Facebook groups um, still have this kind of of bounded dynamic. um, And we see, I think, the effect hold. So Facebook groups have been used for like really productive collective action stuff. Like during the pandemic, especially there are mutual aid groups, there's like buy nothing groups, there's the local neighborhood groups that again, sort of facilitate this kind of work um, in a more bounded way. Um, there are also anti-vax groups and white supremacist groups that are, again, are facilitating collective action. And I don't think that we can discount that, um, but certainly they're not doing it democratically for various reasons I can talk about. Um, 
but I think so. So those dynamics are still present on Facebook, but you're right. Like the larger network or platform is not designed in that way. It's designed to be boundless um, intentionally. Um, when you move to Twitter, so Twitter is like Facebook, doesn't really have clear boundaries. Um, it also, though, it does in some cases. I mean, so it has like hashtags and what hashtags do is like bring people together around a common topic, which is important. And we see it facilitate collective action, like in protests and things like that. Um, but what Twitter is lacking um I guess I should specify that I wrote this book well before Twitter imploded. But <laughs> when even in its golden age, Twitter uh, Twitter's boundaries were not durable. And so the second sort of affordance that I focus on in the book is one of durability, um, which is really getting at the sense that like the boundaries that exist that bring us together have to persist through time, right? So having temporary boundaries will create a temporary community. And if what we want is to form attachments to the common good and to the people that we share the good with, um, then we need those boundaries to be more permanent. And, you know, so Twitter is interesting because it has these boundaries that helps communities form in certain cases, but they're really pretty temporary, right? So the, the hashtags come and go. Um, you can have recurring hashtags um, that kind of get us that place. But again, they you don't have the kind of repeated interactions with members of that community that are so important for, for democratic life, right? You don't build the kind of trust and solidarity through this, like meeting everybody every week and sort of making small talk and doing all those other kinds of things um, that you do in a, in a more clearly bounded global space. Um, and so... Twitter, again, is sort of really helpful for some things. It has, it gives us access. It's the most uh, heterogeneous information environment on the planet, um, or at least it was. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's not good for building communities in the kind of robust sense with attachments and things like that. And, and I would argue that the communities that we do see in a kind of robust way on Twitter are usually formed elsewhere, right? So um, a really robust you know, political science Twitter or something is formed, is sort of a reflection of the communities that are formed in conferences or in um, academic departments and so on. Um, and so, so yeah, so both of these platforms are really important. They do really good things, um, but they're not quite getting us to where we need to be for, for democratic politics. And so um, Reddit is the answer. <laughs> and so um, the third and sort of final piece of this puzzle is to say, okay, well, we know that durable boundaries are important. Durable boundaries, as almost every political theorist has said um, who has written on this kind of thing, are also like kind of fascist <laughs> and like to, you know, create these like firm boundaries that are impermeable, that create an us versus them dynamic. And all of that is true, um, which is why in order to be democratic, those boundaries have to be contested and changeable, right? And so in order to do that kind of changing, we have to be thinking about different ways of doing it. So we need to have variety. We need to have a kind of um, malleability. So the, the boundaries need to be sort of able to be changed by the people in the community. And so this kind of flexibility um, is very easy in digital spaces and very difficult in physical ones. And so it doesn't surprise me that no one has really focused on, on um, durable boundaries because things are really durable in physical space. Um, but the answer to democracy in digital environments is not more flexibility, right? That's Twitter. The answer to the challenges in most platforms online is durable boundaries. And so what we see with Reddit is that it's a really good mix of all three of these affordances. And so 
Reddit subreddits create these boundaries. They are also durable. So subreddits persist through time and you can't really delete them. Um, so they do invite this kind of recognition of a community. They invite the kind of attachments born through repeated interactions um, over time. They also are in the hands um, of the users themselves. And so it's users who control sort of how they interact with other subreddits, how the users themselves can move between subreddits and sort of pick up things that they like and, and dislike in these different spaces and bring them sort of home to one subreddit. Um, and the users can control sort of how the, the subreddits are governed. And so I think Reddit, perhaps counterintuitively to most people, because it has a pretty bad reputation for good reasons, um, nevertheless is, I think, a really exciting model of like, if you are interested in designing online platforms that can facilitate democratic communities, they should look more like Reddit than anything else that exists. And I'm still quite the novice at um, Mastodon. Um, but Mastodon seems like it's a little bit like that in terms of having communities that are permeable and you can sort of move between them. Yeah, you know, Mastodon is an example that I use in the book. Um, and I think it's already something that I'm going to have to rethink. So the book has not even been out for a full year and is already wrong, I think, on a, at least one level. Um, no, there's, be, there's really interesting criticisms of Mastodon as more people starting are starting to join it. And I think it's interesting to sort of push against some of the assumptions that we had about how Mastodon worked when it was a couple hundred thousand people. And now that it's, I think, like millions of people, it is working a little bit differently. And so I think the question of scale is one that plays into some of these affordances in interesting ways. Um, because Mastodon does have that kind of smaller communities interacting with one another vibe like Reddit does. It's, it's um, decentralized or federated or the language that most people use to talk about it. Um, it is, however, like Reddit in some regards some subreddits more than others. Um, Mastodon instances are entirely controlled by the people who control the server. Um, and so the moderation powers, but also the ability to sort of set the rules of the instance on Mastodon is not particularly democratic. And so I, it's um, becoming clear, I think, that the question of malleability or control, user control is, I think, um, less settled on Mastodon than, than I think a lot of people wanted it to be. And, and of course that then leads me to contemporary Twitter <laughs> or Twitter under Musk or whatever, whatever it is that we have at the moment um, where there is and isn't moderation um, where there are and aren't rules. Um, it's, it's extremely confusing. Um, and a, a lot of people, of course, have stepped off of it. Um, so how does the sort of reconfiguration, if you will, of Twitter under 
Elon Musk and the new regime and the firing of so many people who are doing moderation, moderating and um, sort of substance, substance exploration and control. How does that fit into your broader thesis? Yeah. So I think, um, again, this is, it's been really instructive to be thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, Though, again, I think it pulls my book in a lot of maybe interesting directions. Um, you know, so I think what we're seeing on the so functionally in terms of the architecture of Twitter, actually not much has changed yet. I suspect as uh, things start to go wrong in a kind of normal maintenance code way, and they don't have people to fix those things, uh, we might see some technical changes coming down the line. Um, but practically speaking, Twitter operates, you know, it has the same affordances that it did before. And so I think what people are, um, seeing with this change in regime and the sort of discussions of content moderation and the trust and safety team is thinking about a layer that's like sits on top of the architectural layer that I'm interested in in this particular book. Um, and this is sort of where my work is going nowadays. Um, is that like the architecture is really important. And I think that, you know, we're not, unless they fundamentally change the way that Twitter works, which would break it in a lot of other important senses, um, it wouldn't be Twitter anymore. Like the way that people interact with one another on Twitter will remain the same, right? Like I think it will always be difficult for it to form community. I think it will always be difficult for um, those communities to persist. I think it will be very easy for communities that organize elsewhere, like on 4chan, to attack people on Twitter as individuals. And I think it will be very hard to, like, you know, lobby a, a collective response to those kinds of attacks. Um, but architecture isn't everything, right? And so the rules that we have and the ways that we enforce those rules and who does the enforcement, these questions of content moderation um, can change the way that we experience the architecture. Um, and so this is, I think, just a different kind of level of um, institution than the one that I'm thinking about in the book. But I, you know, the two work in, in interesting sort of entangled ways um, that I'm sort of working out at the moment, um, but are nevertheless sort of both present. And of course, that's my next question. <laughs> what are you working on next, Jen? And how is it connected to this book? Yeah, I mean, it's thinking about this, this sort of role of social norms. Um, you know, I, I'm still interested in the kind of institutions that uh, are required for democracy. I'm still interested in, I guess, the architecture, as my colleague put it, the democratic architecture. Um but I'm just interested in the things sort of if we hold constant the like technological affordances, communities still use these platforms in really different ways. And it's worth thinking about, you know, how they do that. And so um, I have a, I'm working on a paper right now on online public shaming and why I think it is not effective on a place like Twitter, but it is effective on a place like Reddit. Um, and so that is thinking a little bit about how these two things go together, right, that the same kind of social norm enforcement works differently on one platform. And another because of these um, technological reasons, affordance reasons. Uh, but I'm also starting a new project on incels that is thinking about the kinds of social norms that communities design for themselves and the kind of moderation structures that they use to enforce those norms and how those can lead to the same kind of community. So a support group for people who want to have, be having sex but aren't, which is what an incel is. Um, 
how these sort of choices that they make on a non-technological level can shape whether a community sort of becomes democratic or not. Um, and so it's a really early stage in that project, but that's some of the stuff I'm thinking about. Or I'm also working on some projects with some colleagues about, um, you know, the oversight, the Facebook oversight board and the kinds of um, ways that corporations are thinking about regulating this. Um, so I'm thinking about this on a couple of different levels, right? So what the users are doing themselves, what the companies are doing um, for the users. Um, but all of those are, are thinking about content moderation on some level. Well, I look forward to talking to you on the New Books Network about any and all of these projects as they they come to fruition. Um, oh man, I don't know if there'll be a book. I I don't know. <laughs> Books are hard to write, as it turns they out. Are. <laughs> they are. They also don't have the kind of immediate gratification that an article has when you write it and it comes out and people respond to it. Like, I don't know that I'm cut out for another book, but we'll see. <laughs> Well, maybe a bigger project than I anticipated. <laughs> One way or another, I'm sure I will speak with you again on the New Books Network. <laughs> I hope so. And in real life. <laughs> yeah, we can only hope, Lily. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I want to thank Jennifer Forstall for joining me today to talk about Designing for Democracy, How to Build Community and Digital Environments, published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. Is there a brick and mortar store to which you would like to give a shout out to? Sure. Uh, well, Women and Children's First in Chicago would love to have your money and support. So please give it to them. All right. And and of course, Oxford University Press also has it on their website. They do. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Jen. Thanks, Lily.